I try to grow a person who really doesn't care to grow. And so I've made the distinction. This is one of the things we talk about in the book between what I call a role player and a grow player. It's great to have role players. Role players want to do their job, but then they want to be done with work when work's done and not, they don't really care to grow. They want to do a good job, but then be done. A grow player says, I want to progress in my career. I want new challenges. I want to try new things. And managers get into trouble, especially with remote people, where they waste time trying to coach people who are role players for development. If I'm, if I'm coaching or managing a role player, I, I manage them for results. everyone and welcome to conversations with bacon i hope you're all doing well i hope you're all safe wherever you may be um before we get into our discussion today uh, just a quick reminder my new book people powered how communities can supercharge your business brand and teams is out right now go and check it out uh it's great to see uh, lots of you enjoying the book but more importantly let's get into our discussion today i'm absolutely thrilled to bring on to the podcast today david finkel how are you doing david i'm doing great Awesome. Well, um, let's first of all get into the rap sheet for for the small number of people who don't know who you are. So um, you're a you're a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. You're a columnist for for Inc.com, Forbes.com, CEOWorld.com. I think what's interesting is that you used to be an Olympic level athlete and you turned into a serial entrepreneur. Um, you've got a whole bunch of books. You're a bestselling author of twelve business books and financial books. Um, you, uh, have a brand new bestseller out, which is called, uh, the freedom formula, which we're going to get into a little bit later on, but you're also the founder and CEO of Maui mastermind, which is a, a coaching organization that helps businesses grow. Um, and I just, you've got a whole load of, of background behind you, which I think is really interesting. And I, I want to get into a, a whole range of different topics today, but I think where I'd like to begin here is to kind of get into, um, one of the biggest challenges that I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has got and that, that I have, which is that kind of balance of, of, of that work-life balance. You've written a lot about this in the past. This is where a lot of your expertise lies and where you talk to your clients about this is, you know, this view that uh, working longer and harder will ultimately ultimately pay off, but it really actually doesn't. How, how do you approach this work-life balance that we, all, that we all wrestle with? You know, Jonah, it actually started from like, once upon a time I was an athlete. I would not consider myself that anymore, about to turn 50. <laughs> but back in that other life, I, I got injured before the Olympics in 1996. And, and so I wasn't able to play in the Olympics. And I transferred that type of uh, driven behavior, you might call it compulsive, depending on, on your viewpoint, to business. And 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 I did it. I you know built this company and it was quite successful and it made several million dollars a year of profit and then I sold it. And what I realized is the first time I built that, um, I did it through really the wrong model. And when I started building a company the second time, I had kids and it changed mm. everything for me. And I I, I realized they changed that, everything. Yeah, I was I was no longer willing to to work seventy eighty hours a week. I, I said there must be a better way of doing it. And what right. I really started looking for was ways that I could create the most value for my company at the same time I could, I could actually have a life I'm, and, and it's possible. Mm. And, and that's what I think most people, they've just given up. They said, the only way I can make money and be successful professionally in my career, whether I'm, I'm leading a company or owning a company, is I've got to do it through you know, blood, sweat, and tears. But that's just not true. That's not true. It seems... Wildly counterintuitive, I think, for many people, depending on where they are. So, for example, I'm based in the Bay Area, and I work with a lot of people who work in Silicon Valley. And there is this glorification of, of you know, I uh, I work my ass off all of the time, and I come home from the office at nine o'clock at night, and I, I live on planes. I'm a, a United Million Miler. <laughs> and what I find ironic about this is. You go to any group of management people and executives, and they always talk about the, you know the importance of learning from failure, and uh, it's not about working harder; it's about working smarter. But then they their behavior is the opposite of what they preach. Where do you see the 
the balance of that? Because it seems like what people say and what people do aren't really the same in many cases. You, you know, sharing from personal experience first and sharing from what I observed from working with lots and lots of clients. So personal experience for me was I felt lost when I, when I didn't have sport. So I transferred right. my sense of identity into business. Um, mm. And then I even saw it more compounded that the tendency was, you know, I'm, I've got three sons who are now 11, 11, my twin sons, older sons, and then a seven-year-old. Right. And right. I'll tell you that my household is crazy. It's chaos. And, and so I <laughs> will run away to work like sometimes it. just to have a little bit of normalcy at work. I mean, certainly it's partly because, you know, when people work for me, I'm paying them. But but everyone seems to be a little bit more organized and everyone seems to be some more respectful. Yeah, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit easier at times. Not, it's not nearly as rewarding and I, and I recognize that. So I think that's one. We, we tend to identify or over-identify with what we do because it makes us feel better about ourselves and we have to separate that. Um, mm. I think it's a lesson for anyone, especially who sold a company. Um, right. I certainly felt lost after I made that first exit and sold. The, the second thing I observe for other people is, I, I think that it's a, it's, well, I'll call it a medical condition, right? It's an inflammation of your control gland called controlitis. People are so scared or uncomfortable with feeling out of control that I think what we do is we clamp down uh, and say, uh, well, I need to be in aware. I need to know what's going on. When the reality is I can't build a great company if I don't build strategic depth into my, my company and the team. Strategic depth being the, the systems, the team that's cross-trained, the the culture right. that says that our company, it's not okay for only one person to be the only one and who has how to do X or Y. And I think those right. are things that drive that. That's interesting. I think your point about control, because arguably there is kind of the, it's kind of like the psychological view of ourselves and, the, and then the reality of ourselves, right? And I get the impression that with a lot of folks who really understand the importance of this stuff, but they don't execute it themselves, it sounds like it you know, according to your philosophy, probably a lot of that is to do with loosening that control, which is a, a real challenge, I think, for a lot of people, uh, especially in senior levels of business, right? It is, but there's a simple start to letting go more. So one of my mentors in business, her name is Stephanie. She's the former um, chairperson of the National Association of Manufacturers. She's built and, and sold sex to several companies. She's had a right. successful marriage for 50 plus years to her husband, Jack. She, she challenged me about nine years ago and, and she basically on the phone, I was talking with her and she said, grab an index card. And she made me write a question on that index card. And she said, every time someone brings you a challenge or a problem and you're tempted to jump in, read the index card. And what she made me write down was, quote, I don't know. What do you think we should do here? Close quote. And it was brilliant. It just right. reminded me as a, as a cue. <laughs> That if I just d dictate and direct, I'm not building any capabilities in the other party. Plus, I'm training them to always come back to me. Right, right. How did you wrestle with that? Because I can imagine that when you were, you know, an Olympic level athlete, which just so you know, I'm obviously Olympic level. Anyone who looks at my body naturally takes away that I'm uh, perfectly <laughs> trained when it comes to any kind of sport. <laughs> <laughs> when when it when you back then, I, I imagine that I don't know a lot about the regimen that's involved in being that level of an athlete, but I imagine it was just a punishing level of of discipline and focus and and practice. Um, at, and, and there's no days off, right? Like it's not like you can go and lay on the couch and have a pizza and watch the Tiger King. You know, it's 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 punishing. So I imagine that it, it forces you into this level of like, I can see what my body can do. I can see what my mind can do. Loosening control with that kind of background has got to be really weird. How did you approach it? How did you kind of get to where yeah, you are you know, now? Initially, it really was. But, but when I look back and see the, 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 the part of me way back when that would try to gut things out, you know, and we would have add the second or the third training session for the day. I used to live right. as a resident athlete at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Well, we had all kinds of injuries or other things. And what, I, what I've come to realize was that the greatest breakthroughs for me as a player, once I had a certain base level of fitness, it actually didn't come from gutting out more hours. It came from, like, for example, I'll just give a simple example. I was playing for a club team in England. And one of the guys who was the captain of the team who used to play for the New Zealand uh, national team came to me and said, David, your grip's wrong. And I said, what do you mean my grip's wrong? I've been playing for 10 years internationally. And he was right. I turned my, my grip a quarter of an inch one direction, changed right. everything. 
And in business, uh. there are these moments where, where something seemingly so small, it doesn't take a lot of time, that is the doorway for creating massive value. And, and for mm. me, the analogy of back to that grip, that one change made me a world better player than, and it wasn't about, you know, 16 hours this week of doing training on the pitch. It was, you know, changing my grip and business has yeah. analogous things too. It's, it's, yeah, I can, I can completely say it reminds me of when I, um, when I first hired an assistant mm-hmm. um, and the idea of, of letting somebody else manage my calendar was horrifying to me. It was just this notion of, you know, I, I like to control my schedule. I like to know exactly what's happening when and where, but then kind of loosening that and then realizing that's something that you don't have to mentally keep track of, but also it's way, it's way better organized. It's way more efficient in how it operates. Um, I get, what was the first, what was the first time in business that you had that moment of I've loosened my grip and now I'm seeing the value of it. And now I'm kind of more bought into, uh, doing this more and more in the future. What was the first time you experienced that? I remembered it. It was, a actually I was in San Diego living there at the time. And at that time the company was, I think we had probably maybe about four or 500 coaching clients at that time, way back when. And, and it was at a workshop at the Hilton. I still remember this in San Diego, in Mission Valley, San Diego. And in this workshop, all of a sudden people come in. We were used to doing workshops with maybe 40 or 50 people. We thought we might have 70 or 80. You know, close right. to 200 people come into this workshop of clients. And I was like, who are all these people? I've, I didn't bring any of them in. I wasn't working with them. What I realized was a key hire that we made at the time, that was a woman by the name of Paige, who was our, our, our back then, we, we'll, we'll call it her COO. She didn't start that way. And right. what I realized was that when Peter and I, the, the business partner I had at the time, when we let go of operations to Paige, um, we tripled our business in one year when we were no longer the ones responsible for all the actual operational details, amazing mm. as that was. So that for me hit home. And after that experience, I was still, I didn't have the mechanics of how to intelligently let go, but I certainly had more of a willingness to let go of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can I, I can imagine that. <laughs> so if somebody's if somebody's listening to this, and I imagine many people who are listening to this podcast, <clears throat> they may not necessarily run their own business, but maybe they're, they're they're working in a part of the business, and they there's a lot of things that they can identify sure. that are, are taking up a lot of time. I think before we can get into the um, optimizing kind of the the time and the effort piece, there's the identifying what you need to change, what you need to let go of, what will be your guidance there? Yeah. So I think most people have very rudimentary distinctions uh, about time, Jono. So for example, Mm. most people might have the distinction between, you know, weekday, weekend, or billable time, non-billable time, or the 80-20 rule. And I I just take that last one, right? Um, This 80-20 principle. But people don't take it nearly far enough. So if if 20% of what I do gives me 80% of the result, We'll call that C time and the D time would be that 80% mass that gives me very little. You know, C right. time is four times less input, giving me four times the output. That's 16 times more valuable. But let's go further. If 20% of what I do gives me 80%, then take 20% of the 20% to get 80% of the 80%. And you know, the math works out to be 4%. The sweet spot gives me 64% of the output. And if you did it one more time, you know, mm. uh, 20% of the 20% of the 20%, that, that's A time. It, it works out to be this magic 1% that gives you half your output. Now, I don't think either right. one of us think that's literal, but no. <laughs> as a model of the world, there are things that I do that are clearly so low value and things that I do that are clearly magnitudes more valuable. So if I'm if I'm the, the head of a department in a, in a larger corporation, like for example, I was coaching for a while before I wrote the Freedom Formula. I was coaching the senior VP for North America for a fortune 50 company. Um, I okay. have some confidentiality things. I can't share which company, but this is a, that's a, a shame. Can we break that? I wish I could, but interesting plus billion dollar, uh, <laughs> a, you know, year revenue company. And they would, yeah, they would have my, the big my dog, lunch. <laughs> <laughs> the big dog, but, but going back here. So this guy, one of the things that he did that created the most value for him was the selection of staff members for his, his staff. And mm. that's where his best time should go. But here's the irony. They, they would make this guy like they, they, they gave him a hassle over having somebody else do his expense report. 
Nah. This is a guy who's making probably close to a million dollars a year, and they're having him do something they could pay somebody else, uh, uh, you know, five percent of what they're paying him to do right. his expense report. And this kind of insanity I see again and again, where we where we prize the the sense of being visibly working or responsiveness or or busy mm. over the have you created value today how did you create value for our team for our department for our company it's it seems like part of this as well is um and this kind of gets a little bit into sales uh, theory and approach uh, is it's relative value right so yeah. a lot of sales people will say okay if you if you're going to sell something for 200 dollars the perceived value is is that but then if you add more and more additional value into your product then the perceived value becomes increased right is that you, you whatever you buy for 200 bucks then it, it feels like you're getting a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars and it reminds me a little bit of um on the last podcast um i had a, a guy on called rahul vora who is the ceo of superhuman and they built an email service and it's 30 dollars a month and they are very focused on kind of email power users and a lot of people will balk at the idea of $30 a month um, to pay for email where you can get Gmail for free. But their point is, just think of how much time you're saving, right? Whatever your hour, if you try and figure out what your hourly sure. rate would be, um, <clears throat> and I use Superhuman and it saves me a ton of time and I would frankly, I'd pay double that. Um, it's more than worth it. So it strikes me that part of the challenge here in being able to determine that is is really understanding the cost of doing relatively rudimentary things, right? Whether it's filing your expenses or managing your calendar or whatever it might be. Um, how do you think you get people into that mindset? Because I do think this is a big leap for a lot of people, especially when they're at the beginning of their entrepreneurial game, is being able to understand the value of their time or the the or even just the value of context switching and the the intellectual cost that that brings in. How would you approach that with your with your coaching clients? Well, I mean, this is really present because especially with the shift for everyone going virtually in terms of having to manage people remotely. And yeah. so I've been talking to a lot of clients recently about, well, hang on a second. You're struggling with managing remotely, but you know, you've got your direct reports who have job descriptions that to say, you know, here's your functional responsibilities. But you've never really defined for them how they create the most value for the for the company and how their success is measured. So come back to this A, B, C, and D time. I would go through with any of my direct reports, and I would actually have them take the first stab at it, and I would talk with them about it. What are your D-level activities? What are the things that take time but create very little value for the organization? Then I would have them flip it and say, what do you think your A and B-level activities are, the things that you do that create the most value? Generally, when I start that off, you know, I, I don't expect people to be able to have the gradation distinction between A and B. They, they can mm. tell that it's more than C. So, for example, this might be someone who says, well, working on pricing or um, selling to our top prospects or um, analyzing the results of our marketing so that we're feeding our winning marketing strategies by starving our losing ones or um, mm. securing another joint venture um, channel partner or right. So whatever that might be. So if they can yeah, nail it yeah. in writing. That's the first one. All the key people in my company um, have a list that says, here's your A and B activities and here's your D activities. And that's the starting point. I mean, there's mechanics for how I have to set up my environment and my schedule so that I don't just stop doing D activities to fill it up with more junk calories. That, that, that's we can get into. But yeah, if I don't yeah, yeah. know what my, my most nutritious business activities are, I, I'm just swinging in the dark and that's dangerous. So it seems like the the key element here is going to be <clears throat> how do we, how do we define the the kind of the matrix of what is valuable and what yeah. is the most important thing to focus on and then it kind of gets a little bit into uh, you know Franklin uh, uh, Stephen Covey's um, in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People where he talks about the 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 quadrant of things that are urgent and things that are important and that we don't spend enough time on the things that are not urgent and are important. Um, we're often just firefighting in the important, urgent stuff. Yeah. Um, how? Imagine somebody has sat down and they've evaluated. Okay, th these are the areas of value that I need to focus on, but not all of them are necessarily urgent. How would you factor that into how they balance all these different pieces in their mind? So, and this is where I get most excited about Jonah, because I think for years people, I, I, I mean, I've read all the books, and and so many people tell you, 
what to do, but they don't give you the how to actually do that. And I'm one of those anal right. attentive process people. So here, here's Good. how it works. So like, this is real world stuff. One simple change I can make to my schedule creates what I need to have, which is my best attention going to my highest value creating activities. And here's how it works. I, I, I do two simple things. I nominate or I pick one day a week to start with that I'm going to call my focus day. And I make every other day my push day. I just kind of get stuff done. On my focus hmm. day, I give myself a two to four hour block and I actually put it in my calendar uh, as a recurring appointment. Maybe it's every Thursday from eight to, to noon or eight to 11. And during that focus block, the one thing I, I make sure I do is I say, okay, I'm only going to do A and B activities, which is probably in that time, I might only do one or two things in that time, right. depending on the week. And if I did just that, and then I do one more thing on my push days, I carve out an hour, maybe an hour and a half, but even just an hour every push day. And so if I did that, I'm only really changing five, six, seven hours per week of chime. But right. the difference is um, I can create more value in those five, six hours per week. I mean, five hours a week times 48 weeks a year, that's the equivalent of roughly five weeks of full-time extra work on my highest value activities, it, it, right. it just changes everything. And people and the, don't do it though. And what's the, the one thing I'm a little bit confused on is the, the vision day when you have that big block. When you, is, is that focused on, what's the difference between that, that vision block and then the, what's the difference with the push day? That's yeah, the piece so I'm missing. A great example. So I've got several direct reports like Kim, Larry, Teresa. These are also my direct reports. And so when I look over on my board, I can see Kim has her focus days every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. She runs our okay. marketing, right? So I, I know that I'm going to respect that time for her and not be interrupted for that because that's when she does the highest value work for us. So coming back to it, on my focus day, well, all I'm doing is I'm saying that this one or two, or for me now, I do three days a week, I'm going to carve out a large block and a large block being two hours, three hours, four hours. And then on my other days, what's the difference between that and a push day? Look, a push day says, I'm not going to get six hours of focus time. I'm not even going to get four or three hours. I'm going to get at least one hour though. Oh, I see. I see. So it's, it's reserving this time. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> I, I, it's, it's so funny you say that, David, because I do, I do something very similar. One of the things I've learned is, is I need to, like, if it's not in the calendar, it, really, it doesn't exist. Um, and, and if you're intentional about reserving slots, yes, whether it's, um, personal development or whether it's, you know, working on your website or working on your social media, whatever it might be, I think it's really valuable. The challenge that I think I've faced and a lot of people face is it's easy to put that three or four hour slot in there, but then it's also easy to think, oh, I really need to have talked to this person. I'll just take half an hour from that slot or I'll just take another piece. And before you know it, it gets eaten up with other things. How have you approached maintaining that discipline and yeah. protecting that time? You're so right. So first, obviously, I, I, it has to be a recurring appointment on the schedule. Number two, right. you know, I mentioned is I have all the, the, the key time for my staff on my wall, on my board. They know what right. my focus days are. So they respect that. Number three, I have to stay out of my inbox. If I go to my inbox, there is no focus time. So how do I do that? <laughs> I, I open up a couple emails that are blank, empty emails, and then I close or, or change from email to I use Outlook. So I'll make it the calendar so that I don't, I have to go the extra click to see my inbox. And that stops me. It gives me pause. I set the stage the day before for my focus time the next day at the beginning mm. of the week. One of the things we, we talk about and we use with clients, we call it your big rock report. And so every week we, we use a web-based app for our company, but we decide what are the one, two, or three most important big rocks for the week. And then during my focus time, that's when I'm doing my big rocks for the week, my highest value creating activities. And a combination of these things, I put in a way message on my email. Actually, my assistant does it. So for example, Mondays and Wednesdays, are, those are my two push days. I that's Those are the days that I do client meetings. Those are the days that I'm open for lower value uh, interactions. Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, I don't do any meetings uh, before 1 p.m. because that's my focus time with that. And then in the afternoon, I know that I'm already kind of a little bit shot. That's when I'll hold the meetings, unless it's a really high value meeting, in which case I will have it. Like if it's with a, a kickoff for a brand new channel partner, 
yeah, I'm going to sit down with them at my prime time. So my assistant sets my away message on the end of day on, on, on Monday. So I don't have to check email all the way till Wednesday. Now I still might take a glance on, on Tuesday afternoon, but I don't feel the pressure of getting back to somebody and she's screening mm. it. And, and then kind of coming back to this, a lot of people will spend a low level of vigilance on their inbox or their app feed because they're scared of missing that one in a thousand emails or, or messages. And what I do is I tell clients, take the needle out of the haystack. It makes no sense to, to, to be fearful of missing that key email from a, a customer or from a, a lender or from a, a team member. Instead, what I'll say is if it isn't a true emergency, my assistant or these other parties, they can get a hold of me a different way than email, but only yeah. for emergencies. Why would I want yeah. to have to have that low-level vigilance? Makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, that's the bat phone, right? That's, 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 that's right. when you call the bat phone to get hold of David. So That's right. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about here, of course, is um, is is finding good people right mm. good people are necessary to make all of this work <laughs> and i think one of the things that uh um, a lot of entrepreneurs really struggle with especially if you're running your own business is there's a lot on the line for hiring someone yeah um so a lot of people start out with virtual assistants or they start out with people who work in part-time um but the challenge with that sometimes is you're kind of trying to use somebody who hasn't got the right kind of experience to do things that do have uh, a different type of experience is required. So for example, I know a lot of people, and I've made the same mistake myself in asking your assistant to help with creating, for example, copy. Um, Hmm. And your assistant may not necessarily have copywriting experience. So this is all about finding the right kinds of people um, in an affordable way for your business. How do you, how do you approach getting the right kinds of people because look if you've got if you've got 300 grand in your back pocket that you want to hire someone with then you've got a lot more flexibility in finding really good people but i think a lot of people especially people running their own businesses don't necessarily have that luxury available to them how would they how would you recommend they approach that three quick comments first is general how many people take a good team member and ruin them because they manage them poorly so i would i would ask people to hurt their skill of developing people that's an aside (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I want to come back to this, but carry on. So. Okay. The, the second one here is, uh, especially with the move to virtual, it's really hard. So you live in the Bay Area, correct? Yeah, that's right. So let's say I want to find an assistant and I want someone who's local there. Well, that assistant's going to cost me four times what that assistant could cost me somewhere else in the US or, or North America. Now you yeah, say, well, David, sure. there's stuff that I need her or him to do physically. Okay. So for example... I live in a small community called Jackson Hole, Wyoming, really expensive cost of living. Plus, our labor pool is really small. So I split the role of my assistant. I've got um, Tiffany, who works roughly 15 hours a week, and she does all the physical stuff here. So if I need to have my tires on my car changed from snow tires to main tires, she does it. If my computer needs work on it, she's there when the technician remotes in. And then I've got Emily, who works another 30 plus hours and she's eight hours away. So that's the second one, which is expand your hiring pool, which mm. does help me to be able to hire from lower costs of living. And, and I'll tell you, I'll, pound for pound, I'll put Emily up against any assistant in the world. She's phenomenal, as is Tiffany, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the third comment I would make on the hiring, and I think this is where people screw it up, they're not really clean and clear on who they need. They, they think about the job description, but they never take the extra step of saying, if these are the person's responsibilities, what is the candidate profile? It says these are the experiences, the skill sets, the background, the personality qualities, the character traits that the person would need to be great at this job. And then I have to narrow that down and say, what are my three to five must-haves? And then when I hire, I hire specifically to the things that are must-haves for being successful in that role. Because mm. otherwise, Jono, I... I try to hire somebody that's that there's no way I'm going to find a left-handed, you know, fluent in <laughs> in seven language person to it's too much. Right. But if I let the must-haves yeah. drive the decision, I make solid choices each time. Maybe not the perfect choice, but but solid choices. And I see people mess that up all the time. Yeah. No, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> the other thing that strikes me on this when looking for good people is um is 
making it clear, and you touched on this in your first point, that this is it's it's a two way process, right? When you hire someone, it's not like um, there's this antiquated view that that person works for you and you're the boss. Hmm. Whereas in reality, I think if you try to understand that new person who comes in and what they want to accomplish and what their kind of career ambitions are and their desires, and you can play a role in helping them and supporting them and maybe providing some mentoring, especially if if this is someone relatively early in their career, I think it builds like an amazing level of retention. Like I think not enough people um, out there realize that when you hire someone, it's an invest. You need to play a role in shaping kind of them as well, right? Is that it's an active role in building a relationship. Some of the 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 most um, accomplished people I've ever worked with in my in my career, um, the thing that they that the people they always highlight is the people they they lean on and they appreciate the most their assistance. Hmm. And and they because I think they realize just the the intrinsic value in their assistance and they've built a real relationship with them. So how do you approach you know if if somebody kind of comes in you mentioned was it Tiffany? Um, yeah. You know when when Tiffany first started working for you, I'm assuming that you didn't just give Tiffany a big list of stuff and like get on with it <laughs> and show me the results. Well, I'll give you my answer. I don't know what she would say, but uh, <laughs> right. All kidding I, aside. Because there is a there is a balance, of course, is that I, I would love to spend like I take a very similar approach. I've got um, someone on the ground here, mm-hmm. Wendy, who takes care of, of things in person, and then Mindy, who takes care of, and Mindy's based out in Florida. Um, and you could spend hours, kind of like spending time and mentoring and and on the phone and things like that. So, but time is limited. How do you get that right balance? Yeah. So first of all, when you're hiring an assistant, want to start there. The most important person to understand is actually yourself. This is actually something we talked about in the second chapter of the Freedom Formula, which is if I need to know me, like, for example, I'm curious about this for you, Jonah. You strike me as an auditory person. I am as well. Right. I I don't want to type a text to somebody to ask them to do something. I want to be able to tell them. At the same time, I'm a bit of an introvert and and a little bit of a recluse. I mean, when I'm I'm out in the business world, yes, I can be engaging. But in my day-to-day life, I hang out with my family and I'm at work by myself in an office. I... I guess I was doing, you know, social distancing before we needed to, because that just fits my personality. So my assistant, (laughs) if I can't hire an assistant who needs lots of personal interaction because he or she would just find it, they would start to say, well, is David mad at me? Because he never talks to me. Well, Tiffany and Emily know it's not about them. It's just, that's my personality. Um, Yeah. Audio delegation. I, I, I have a, I use a simple app on my phone. I can, I can leave them a, a minute and 17 second audio delegation, as opposed to if I have to meet with them or call and talk with them on the phone, it's going to be a a 15 minute conversation. Well, I don't have that time Mm. that I want to use that way. So that's been helpful by knowing that about myself, I was able to find people who, who are willing to accommodate my style. Um, That's interesting because I never really thought about the fact that, yeah, there are just different communication styles that naturally happen. Right. So you, you mentioned like the kind of the ought, more of a, like, an, like speaking to people as opposed to writing. Um, and I never really thought that that's, that's a good point because one of the things I've discovered about myself is um, I love talking to people on the phone, but I have such limited time that yeah. I now tend to prioritize phone for quote unquote more important things. <laughs> but when I get on the phone with somebody for a less important thing, like I'm just going to go and have a chat with a friend or, you know, we'll, I'll have a call with somebody else. It's really enjoyable and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it kind of, again, raises this challenge of how do you understand what you enjoy and what you want? And then how do you deliver work that offers value? Because I think, again, you and I are very similar in the fact that I'm always looking for optimizations, right? Like what is the way in which you can optimize your life and your business in a way that makes you more efficient, but also how do you strike the balance of happiness there? And, and work in a way that's more kind of like, I guess you could say, um, just more in line with your natural personality. How would you suggest to people listening to this that they evaluate, for example, that they're more auditory or they're more more of a written person or other similar elements like that so they can make those decisions? That's a really interesting question. So if it were me, I would ask the question, how do I like information in and how do I like information out? For example, I hate it when people send me audio messages. I, I don't... It's funny. I, I actually, if someone were to send me an audio message, I forward it to a, to a transcriptionist who types it up for me. I just don't, right. I don't like listening to it that way. However, 
yeah. I really enjoy being able just to share off the cuff and tell somebody through an app right. on a recording. And that's worked well. So my staff knows. Email David if they want information to be in or give him reporting through our project management system. And he's going to give you a response back most likely through the app that we use. And the app I'm using right now is I, I really enjoy it. It's called Voxer, V-O-X-E-R. It's not right. that different from WhatsApp or some of these others, but it's very simple. And I like it. I can see that they've listened to it. And funny enough, Jonah, my assistants, I used to have them when they came in and I used to meet with them in person. If I met with them for 20 minutes, I might give them, you know, 15 or 20 to do's. So I'd have them record the session anyways, because I'd want them to listen right. a second time before they ask questions because I might have answered it. So when I give it to them as a one minute to eight minute kind of audio, they already have the recording. They, they actually appreciate it because now they have the ability to go back and and listen a second or a third time. Although I have learned this is interesting. Um, Tiffany, especially, she really likes it when I do one message for one item which would drive me crazy. I, I would want to have one message that had everything because that's my style. I would have one that has <laughs> right. everything. So that's that's kind of just knowing that about people. I can accommodate that. I just tap the button again. It creates a new message. So going back to knowing who you need, how do you like information in? How do you like information out? What What is the, the least unpleasant or the most pleasant part of when you, you're handing off to somebody else for your assistant? Is it there's a guy I work with. He's a physician who owns 20 different medical clinics. He likes to text. That That's him. He he travels a lot. And so he couldn't do audio dictations because you know people are around him on the plane. So he'll just text, text, text. That would drive me crazy. My wife and I fight about that all the time. Put down your phone, I tell her. But, you know, different styles for different people. Right, right. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um because one of the things I find interesting about hmm. about you, David, is uh, and, and from just kind of looking a little bit into into your background, um, and I think listeners will be picking up on this as well, is there's a lot of coaches out there. There's a lot of people who run mastermind programs, and um, especially I think in the marketing space, a lot of these people are. You know they're leaning on Lamborghinis and they're they're making these <laughs> these sizzle reels from Malibu beach houses and it's just to be completely honest with you it's just nauseating sure it's uh, it's just really crass unnecessary glorification of wealth and they go in with these like you know you can make ten thousand dollars a day um you know uh, with two hours of work and all of this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of those people, and I'm not going to name any names, but I think anyone who's who's seen this well will know who these people are. Uh, also, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I find interesting about these folks is there's no doubt that the approaches and the methods that they use in building their businesses or in how they do direct response marketing or affiliate marketing or whatever it, it might be, it, there's no doubt that a lot of this is working, right? But the thing I wrestle with is it's the tonality and the approach in which they take sure. it, you know? So I, I will give, give one example. There's a service called ClickFunnels, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yes. um, which is a service for people who are less familiar with this. Is it's a, it's a tool that people can use to build sales funnels. And it, it actually seems like it does a pretty valuable job. It's really designed for a lot of people who don't want to run all their own websites and infrastructure and things like that. But a lot of the standard kind of copy that comes with ClickFunnels and a lot of the, the things that are in the teaching it looks like a billboard in Reno. It's right. these big flashing green buttons with order in the next five minutes and you'll get this. And The countdown and, timer. <laughs> yeah, the countdown timer. And and I find this a fascinating world because, again, I think there, there are real psychological models that people are putting into action here that deliver results. But there is also an element in some of these people, and I would not include ClickFunnels in this, but some of these other folks um, where it's it's um, it's pretty exploitative in many ways, and I haven't seen any of that with you. Like you have a, you. a a proven career, a track record. You're very kind of calm and um, and, and measured in the way that you're joining this conversation. And I imagine that you must have wrestled with that balance. Like you you want to be out there and be a proven business leader and a coach. But you probably don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dave. But you don't want to descend into that. Yeah. And how have you approached that? 
It's, I appreciate the question and the compliment. I, I, I would say it this way. I've, I remember struggling with the idea of, you know, when I built the first company back, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I sold it when I was 35. And the industry I was doing the coaching in had more people that were attracted to, had more people who did it that way. And what I found for me was right. that that felt really uncomfortable for me, yeah. I've always wanted to be I, I'm coming from the place of I'll be I'm a peer who's in this with you versus uh, someone who knows everything with that part. And the like big thing that's done right. for me right. is it lowers the the pressure. Like for example, I mean you talk to a client of ours, and one thing like I, I know certain things about me I'm really good at, and there's some places I just I'm horrible at. I'm I have a hard time. I'm anal retentive around time, and and I know that <laughs> my wife puts up my wife you know, is much more of an artist and she's just a beautiful soul. And without her, I would be just a, a much worse person. She's great about that. <laughs> so I want to share <laughs> right. with people like, uh, you know, I get, I, I get antsy when anxious, when uh, things aren't on time that I, I want to share the good and the bad. And then people can mm. choose the pieces that fit for that. I, we have a value in our company. We call it eating our own cooking. And I'll tell everyone, we, we, we ascribe to it. We're better at it today than we were a year ago. We'll be better next year. But there are plenty of things that we don't do as well as we would like to yet. And, and I think that's really key because, uh, you know, this idea of wealth, I mean, this is an interesting one. I'm curious what your take on this would be. Mm. I, I've always equated wealth. There is the financial aspect, but then there's also the lifestyle. And the lifestyle for me that's been more important is, the statement, someone said this to me once, and it really just stood with me. It was, do you want to live according to your values or according to your vanity? And mm, that is interesting. I've tried much more, especially post kids to live according to values as opposed to, you know, vanity. And that, you know, we, that's, I think the biggest decision people can make is where they live. So, you know, people say, well, why'd you choose Jackson? Well, we also consciously chose to be living in a very working class neighborhood of Jackson because I think that the values of the neighborhood are more important in some ways than a thousand lectures I could give to my kids. Um, yeah. and I think that that really yeah. just hits home for me anyways. I, I, I could not agree more with you. Um, I, I, I've had a similar kind of take on this in that, you know, I was, um, born and raised in a, in a working class part of Northern England. Um, and it's funny because just before we started recording, we were talking about going on podcasts, you know, when you've got a book out. Um, and I, I went on one podcast and I said, like, I'd never heard the word entrepreneur, I don't think, until I moved to the US um, when I was 27 or 28. Um, it just, I didn't grow. I grew up around entrepreneurial people, but they weren't labeled entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They were people who ran, you know, a, a, you know a, an appliance store in your local town or whatever it might be. And one of the things that's been interesting, I think, is to me, and I have a sim very similar view of wealth, which is wealth is not money, it's time. And it's, uh, and it's, are you really happy in what you do? So I, for example, I very intentionally run my own business. I very intentionally work from home because I want to see my son who's seven mm -hmm. and my wife, Erica, I want control over my time. I don't, the idea for me of getting into a car and commuting two hours to an office and sitting in an office is not my thing. It's it's fine. Other people enjoy doing that, but I like having the level of control. And for me, a big chunk of this is to, to your point is it's all about the values in which you put across. Like uh, I I would rather make less money and know that I'm actually helping people and being a good person than you know, oh, well, we can squeeze another $500 out of these people with this upsell, or we can get them into our seven grand mastermind coaching program. If we, if we have our sales copy, make this promise that we can't guarantee because in the, in the small print, it says, you know, results are not typical. It just, <laughs> it, to me, it seems like it might be an effective business technique, but it's a flawed human technique. <laughs> Totally agree. <laughs> it's what worries me. Well, and go back to the model. So I think the key is sometimes the models that we choose. So the neighborhood that you live in is a model, but go back. You mentioned coaching. Well, that's my world. The, the change I made was I learned that I never want to sell coaching as a package. I always want to sell coaching as a forever service. What's the difference? If I'm selling mm -hmm. a package, that's the gym who sells gym memberships that they don't care if someone actually uses. Matter of fact, they prefer them not to. 
Right. Whereas if right. I sell it as a forever service, I actually really care that people are getting the results and the value so that they stay with us for a longer period. Now, a friend of mine a long time ago, his name was Grant. He ran two very interesting gyms in Charlottesville, Virginia. I used to live there with my wife. And his gyms were extraordinary because people who got memberships used the memberships. It was a very different thing. They did create <laughs> partnerships with different rehab, uh, with orthopedic groups and physical therapy groups. And it was just a very different model. Um, and I won't put a judgment to it. I'll just simply say that that ladder, the forever service, fits my value structure a lot better. And I find it yeah. much more fulfilling to have real relationship all over time. That to me is fulfilling. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It, it, it's actually one of the things I've experienced as a consultant, and I, you know, work with companies building, helping them to build communities. Is if I don't feel, and I'm, I'm going to guess here, David, you're the, the, that you're the same. If I don't feel I'm offering enough value, yes, um, I, I, it, it gives me anxiety. Like I'll, I'll want to find ways to offer value. And actually, there's been cases where I've dropped a client because they're quite happy putting me on, you know, on a monthly retainer. I that they. they that they don't necessarily need more value than I'm, than I'm already providing. But for me, the level of anxiety, I just don't feel like it's worth what they're giving me. Right. And, and I think for a lot of consultants and some coaches as well, it's, oh, if I'm getting paid X number of dollars a month and I, it's, it's two hours of work a month, that's great. And I just, I, I don't know. It's, I, I think there's a psychological element to that as well in feeling comfortable that what you're doing is actually delivering value, right? For sure. And, and what I've come to learn for me also, I'll just mention this because I think it's important. Value is always measured in the eye of the recipient, not, not, not for my end. So for example, right. I might have a client who value for them is do I double sales? I might have a different client who says, I don't care about making more money, but I'm working 75 hours. Can you get me down to working 40 and let me take vacation finally, for heaven's sakes? So value is measured differently. And I think as long as we Except that they get to determine that, then I agree with what you're saying. I want to be careful yeah. that my own feelings don't limit that because what I right. want might be different than what they want for themselves. And as long as yeah. I acknowledge that, I 100% agree with the rest of what you shared. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. So um, again, switching a little bit as we kind of pull this into a into a finish and in, into a finish point. Um, let's. let's Talk about your new book. Like, I'd love to learn a little bit more about about what's in the book, what the focus of it all is, and and who who should be reading it. Yeah. So the book itself is called The Freedom Formula: How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family, Health, or Life. And what I I wrote the book for anyone who is a leader in a business, whether you're leading a team of six people, or a team of six hundred, or a team of six thousand, or sixty thousand. The book is designed. The first half is to help you operationalize working smarter. What does it actually mean for you? Nuts and bolts, mechanics. You know, how do you get an assistant? How do you find them? How do you deal with email? How do you deal with scheduling? How do you build strategic depth? The second half of the book answers a different question. So if the first half says, how do I operationalize working smarter? The second half says, how do I get my team creating more value? Um, mm. And for example, one of the things I notice is that a lot of companies right now, as they've moved to virtual, what I notice, Jono, is they, they start to prize responsiveness, or I'll call it hyper-responsiveness, hmm. over value created. Because we, when, when I can't see people, I, I sometimes will substitute as a marker for people doing work how responsive they are because I'm scared that they're not doing anything. And that's right. crazy. So I train hmm. people without intending to to do less value creation, but to stay looking busy. And I see it a lot. So this is what right. the book's about. How do you yourself create more value? And then how do you get your team working on the right things in the right way together so you create more value and really to bring some humanity back into this thing so that they're not right. working 90 hours a week, but can they work 55 hours a week and create more value? That's really the marker. And a lot of people who will be listening to this have been, because of COVID-19, mm. have been thrust into working from home. And there will there'll be varying levels of experience of working from home. Um, how does the content in the book apply to people who are 
fairly new working in a virtual environment because I can imagine that this book will be very useful to people who aren't particularly familiar with working from home and their bosses may, may not be familiar with having people who work for them working from home because of COVID-19. How would the book apply to that kind of context specifically? For sure. So whether it be the sections about how to handle email more effectively, the use of subject lines with certain little tips and tricks. But I think my favorite thing I would point out is, let's say you're now moving to manage somebody remotely. The most frustrating experience I've ever had managing, and I've, I've confirmed this with hundreds of clients, which is I try to grow a person who really doesn't care to grow. And so I've made the distinction. This is one of the things we talk about in the book between what I call a role player and a grow player. It's great right. to have role players. Role players want to do their job, but then they want to be done with work when work's done and not, they don't really care to grow. They want to do a good job, but then be done. A grow player says, I want to progress in my career. I want new challenges. I want to try new things. And managers get into trouble, especially with remote people, where they waste time trying to coach people who are role players for development. If I'm, if I'm coaching or managing a role player, I, I manage them for results. I'm very direct. I say, I want this result by this date in this manner. Can you do that? As opposed right. to if I'm doing it for development, I might say, ask questions and take two or three times more time because part of the value of that interaction is not just that I give clear handoff of responsibility, but that I actually build their capability as I'm handing off. So that's something right. that I think, especially in a virtual world, we need to be much more aware of. And, and I'll give one more that a friend of mine shared with me. I put it in the book. It's called Can't Do, Won't Do, Don't Know How. The next time you have a staff frustration, ask yourself, is it that this person can't do it, won't do it, or don't know how to do it? And depending on your answer, you treat it very differently. Right. Interesting. Fascinating. So where, where can people go and find out more about the book? Yeah, two ways. I mean, first of all, you can go to any of their online booksellers they like to buy it, whether it be Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Indie Books, whichever. And I'll also point out they can actually get a the first 55 pages of the book for free on our website at freedomtoolkit.com. And awesome. there they can, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll love it. I just would ask one thing. If they love the book, review it on whatever site they bought it on. It used to yeah. be that, you know, the cover blurbs <laughs> were how people decided, should I get the book or not? Um, and we've got some great ones, Editor of Inc. and some other places. But nowadays, it's all about what do their peers think about it. So if you love it, hate it, yep. it's up to you. But if you would take even 30 seconds and review it online after you get it, that would be a gift back that I would really appreciate. I'm just going to amplify that point, David, because as uh, I, I, yeah, book reviews are super important, folks. Um, if you enjoy the book, especially I, I'd say going to Amazon, because so many people buy books mm. from Amazon, get a review in there, write a little blurb about it, because it really does help with book rankings and all the rest of it. Um, David, this has been a real thrill. Thank you so much for coming on. Like I mentioned earlier on, I really admire the work that you do. And it's not just that the work that you do is really good, but it's I just like the tone and the Thank approach you. that you take. And I think we need more of that in the world. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your insights today. Really enjoyed the time together, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you.